Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. This is the show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are making the news and a wider view on Irish and international business and politics. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. Coming up on today's show, are you tired of feeling overwhelmed by your taxes? Well, stay tuned as tax expert Marion Ryan will be joining us to give you some advice on reducing your taxes in 2023. We'll also be discussing a very thought-provoking topic, why Ireland shouldn't take the support from the US for granted. An expert on US relations and former diplomat Ted Smith will be with us to give us a fresh perspective on this topic. And finally, to round out the show, I'll be talking to Jeff Mache of the Financial Times about the murky world of the Great Lux economy. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com and I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, take a quick listen to this. This is an extraordinary country. George Bernard Shaw, speaking as an Irishman, summed up an approach to life. Other people, he said, see things and say why. But I dream things that never were, and I say, why not? It is that quality. It is that quality of the Irish, the remarkable combination of hope, confidence, and imagination that is needed more than ever today. That was, of course, President John F. Kennedy, who made a very celebrated and historic visit to Ireland in 1963 when he addressed the houses of the Oireachtas because Ireland and the US share a very long and deep history that's based on the large numbers of people who left this island to settle in the US over the last 200 years. Today, almost 10% of their population claim Irish descent. We now enjoy close cultural, economic and diplomatic relations. There's over 700 US companies that have investments here in Ireland and they employ hundreds of thousands of people. But we shouldn't take their continued support for granted, so says Ted Smith, who's president of the advisory board of the Kluxman Ireland House NYU, and he is chair of the Clinton Institute for the American Studies in UCD, and he joins me now. Ted, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me today, Mandy. Now, Ted, you were writing recently in the Irish Times and you said that sometimes we here in Ireland take for granted the resolute support that we get from people and presidents like Joe Biden and also the United States Congress. Uh, But American relations weren't always as rosy as they are today. I know you've got a lot of experience working on this yourself in the past. Can you just give us an overview of how those diplomatic relations have shifted over the course of the last 50 years? Well, thanks uh, for letting me talk about this. Makes me feel like a historian at times, but it's very relevant to today because we do have a unique special relationship with the United States, with Washington, and we have to work hard to keep it going. We've seen how the British used to have a really special relationship with America, and we've seen how that has waned. So these things come and go. Now, going way back to um, the formation of the Irish state, uh, President Woodrow Wilson and Ulster Scott uh, settler uh, from his family were refused to support self-government for Ireland at the Paris Peace Conference after the First World War. And um, when uh, the U.S. did recognize our, the Irish state, it nevertheless prioritized its relations with the British government, its ally in the First World War, and a global military ally for many years afterwards against fascism and communism. And um, 
Ireland, um, you know, exacerbated the rift, as it were, with Washington when it stayed out of uh, the Second World War, uh, refused to help America when it joined the war in, in December 1941, and um, also stayed apart from from uh, NATO in 1949. Now, we had our reasons for that because we said we didn't agree with the border in Northern Ireland. But a separate uh, condition could have been made on that, and we would have uh, been able to cement relationships with the United States. And then just to take you up to President Kennedy, yes, as you, as you quite rightly say, it was a celebrated visit. It really improved trade, investment, and tourism. But he studiously avoided supporting the anti-partition position of the Dublin government at the time and supported the British government policy. Mm. So right up to the 1970s then, as you, you point out, the, the US government has consistently sided with the British on Northern Ireland policy in particular. Um, and I know you worked in this area. Can you just talk me through why that shifted? What precipitated the more aligned relationship between ourselves and the US? There were there were human rights issues that developed in the 1970s that fundamentally shifted. The, can you talk us through that? Sure. <laughs> well, I think... Um the policy on Northern Ireland in Washington changed in re- reaction to the um, um, uh, civil rights marchers in Northern Ireland being attacked by police and by the army. And uh, these uh, television images shocked not just Irish Americans, but Americans. And there were U.S. Senate hearings on the killings, which attracted widespread media coverage and influenced, of course, London to suspend the Stormont government. But what, what particularly shifted Washington's approach on Northern Ireland is when Irish politicians from North and South changed their policy from calling for an end to partition to one of supporting equality for nationalists and unionists in the North. Now, John Hume and Irish diplomats then secured support for this policy from the so-called Four Horsemen, Speaker Tip O'Neill, Governor Hugh Carey, and Senators Ted Kennedy and Pat Moynihan, and these powerful Irish Americans, they sold it to successive U.S. presidents. You know, as you said, uh, human rights was an issue. Certainly with Jimmy Carter, it was an issue. So that in 1977, he issued a statement which, uh, for the first time, recognized a role for the Irish government in Northern Ireland and uh, talk, called for uh, peace and equal rights in Northern Ireland. And that was to spark off a relationship between the Irish government, the British government and the US government working together to try and move along the peace process. And that happened um, at very crucial times in the peace process. Uh, I I worked on the peace process myself. I was in government at the time and I seen how influential um, the US administration could be, not just moving the British government, but also assuaging unionists and even Republicans here in Ireland. So so the effect cannot be understated. But you, I want to move on to talk a little bit, Ted, about your um, your piece, which which talked about the continued relationship with the Irish and and US government. You mentioned that um, granting maybe the right to vote in an Irish presidential election could be a huge part of deepening um, a, a new and constructive engagement with Irish America. Why do you think that that is? Well, Irish uh, American community is aging out. Uh, it's losing. Uh, there's less immigration from Ireland, and so it's uh, it's an ethnicity which is in danger of losing its impact on American politics and American politicians. So we've got to work hard to sustain it. 
and to create a, a greater interest in Ireland. And uh, we believe that recognizing the role of the Irish diaspora around the world in some symbolic way, uh, involvement in Irish situation, would be would be important. Now, you know, there are all sorts of uh, reasons, uh, arguments against this on the grounds that you can't have representation without taxation. But um, the one suggestion is that uh, Irish citizens abroad, not people who are just Irish, but they have to be a citizen abroad, uh, perhaps holding an Irish passport, would have the right to vote in uh, Irish presidential elections every seven years. And that would need a referendum uh, in Ireland to see if people would support it. And there are some, uh, you know, initial, the government has said it would support this, but there are some concerns, you know, people say you would be swamped by a large vote, both from Northern Ireland and from Britain and from the United States, which uh, might uh, skew the outcome. Uh, in relation to people voting from the Irish state. So one can appreciate some of the concerns around that. But I think we need to get the conversation going. What would work? And some people have talked about the French system for accommodating its overseas citizens, whereby a number of seats are set aside in the Senate for overseas representation. And uh, these folks get together and they discuss just matters affecting the French diaspora. So there, there are various ways we could we could come at this. Mm. Um, and certainly this could form part of the discussion that we're going to have now on this share, this discussion around a united or shared Ireland. But apart from that, are there other ways that Ireland can work towards strengthening um, the ties with the US for future relations? Because as you said, the demographic is changing quite radically in, in the US. But also, um, for many people, President Biden represents the last of the US political class with like really strong Irish roots. So what else can be done? to kind of shore up the ties between Ireland and whoever takes over in the years ahead? Well, I think the, the Irish government has committed uh, to its diaspora, particularly in the United States, and we need more of what is actually happening uh, to reach out to the next generation, the younger Irish Americans. And there's a very active program being promoted by the Irish Embassy in Washington, by the many consulates we have around the country to support uh, culture and uh, Irish culture in particular, and studies in universities. Um, you know, the Luxman Ireland House, with which I'm associated in NYU, is a very important uh, way of reaching out to younger Irish and Irish Indian Americans. The gateway to getting their interest um, are the great literary figures we have, um, you know, Seamus Heaney, Yeats, Joyce, Beckett, and, you know, people like Colm Tobin, who are now teaching also, and Kevin Kenny in New York University, New York and, uh, and Columbia. Um, they are attracting a lot of interest. And so if you look around the United States, there are something like uh, 200 American universities which have Irish studies courses. I think the uh, we could support those more fully. We should give them more funding. Um, American humanities courses are you know under a lot of stress right now um, to get support. So I think we need to uh, up the support for uh, cultural connections, and then we need to try and bring more uh, of these young Irish Americans over to Ireland for um, various uh, work programs, volunteer programs, and educational programs. A lot of it is happening right now, 
But I think we just need to intensify that and make a big commitment to it. Yeah, because of course, travel, TV, media has become so ubiquitous here now. We almost feel that we're, we're, we know what's going on in America on an hour to hour basis. There's been a huge interest in American politics in particular over the last number of years. How do you see or what role do you see the US government likely to play in Ireland's future in terms of what it can help us with on the Northern Ireland peace process and also in terms of foreign direct investment. President Biden has obviously demonstrated his continued steadfast support for the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and he wants to cooperate with both communities. And I think his appointment of uh, Joe Kennedy the third, as his special envoy to Northern Ireland uh, is extremely important because he said the objective is to support the economic growth of Northern Ireland, including US, encouraging U.S. businesses to invest in the North. And um, if you look at uh, President Biden's National Security Council, it's one of the most experienced ever on Irish matters, including Director Jake Sullivan, Amanda Sloat, and Tom Wright from Dublin. So um, they'll likely urge caution and any rush to a dual referendum in Irish unity uh, unless it convincingly accommodates both the British and Irish identities. Mm. I think what they want to support really is um, reconciliation and uh, coming together of the communities uh, in Northern Ireland to assure peace going forward. And, um, you know, recently, obviously, the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, came out for, um, you know, more flexibility in relation to the protocol. And I think um, behind the scenes, uh, the United States is talking to both uh, London and to Brussels to encourage a pragmatic outcome. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm talking to Ted Smith, who's former Irish diplomat and chairman of the advisory board of UCD's Clinton Institute. Ted, you mentioned there before um, the, the, the importance or the assistance that the US have been giving to Ireland in its most recent and difficult times with the UK government in relation to the Brexit protocol. It's hard to overestimate how crucial Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi were in, you know, making sure that really ridiculous things were not done with a UK government who were in constant turmoil over the past year. Um, you've worked in this area in the past, you've, you've studied Irish uh, US relations for long. Is there, has there been a time where that relationship between Ireland and the US has been more advantageous to us or more crucial for us? Well, I think um, back in the 80s, for sure, when uh, Margaret Thatcher was refusing to sign the Anglo-Irish Agreement, um, Speaker Tip O'Neill went to President Reagan and said, you've got to help us out here. You've got to put pressure to bear. And and uh, and Reagan did. And uh, afterwards, when Thatcher was asked why she signed the agreement, uh, she said, the Americans uh, made me do it. So you've got this um, extraordinary leverage um, which corrects the imbalanced relationship between uh, Ireland and the UK. And it can only be used, obviously, very sparingly. But certainly, um, Nancy Pelosi has to you know, be one of the greatest speakers that uh, America's ever had. Uh, she came to Ireland, she went to Northern Ireland. She made it quite clear, as did a number of other key Irish Americans, both Republicans and Democrats, um, that they were uh, going to defend the uh, Good Friday Agreement. There would be no hard border within Ireland. And um, there could be, was no possibility of a trade deal between the US and the UK 
until the protocol was fixed. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting those names that you keep mentioning there, John Hume, the Speaker Tip O'Neill, Hugh Carey and Ted Kennedy. And it's lovely to see Kennedy's name coming back into that um, US-Ireland mix again. Who are the people, in your view, who will be advocates for Ireland going forward and who are the names we should watch out for in that relationship? It's a good question and I, I would particularly point to Brendan Boyle whose parents came from Ireland, immigrated from Ireland and uh, he's an up-and-coming democratic leader and uh, from Pennsylvania and really active and committed. Another one is Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, always available for um, Irish issues. Uh, Richie Neal, uh, who was the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, which con- which controlled trade issues um, uh, in the House uh, from Massachusetts. And I'm thinking of Bill Keating, another Democrat uh, from Massachusetts. And then Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania, who will be chair uh, in the Republican House of the Europe Subcommittee, a very key position. So there is this younger generation of uh, Irish-American politicians coming along. And Mark Daly uh, from the Irish Senate has done superb work at the state legislature level in the United States, across the 50 states, uh, in building up an Irish state legislature caucus. And that, to me, is just as important as um, having a presence in uh, Washington. Uh, It's at the local level where we can really draw on a great deal of Irish-American emotional support. Well, speaking about emotional support, uh, I have to ask you, do you think it's likely that we'll have a visit from President Biden this year in 2023? Well, he has said informally to a number of us that uh, he will hope he will be in Ireland uh, in 23. And um, it's not clear what date it would be. I don't think he'll come in April for the Good Friday anniversary. It's probably a bit too soon with the legislative agenda he has. And um, I'm sure President, ex-President Clinton will be there. So if I were making a bet, I'd say sometime in the summer um, for a visit uh, to his uh, favorite places in Louth and Mayo. And, um, and, uh, and I think he'd go to Northern Ireland. It would be an occasion for a great celebration. You know, in many ways, he's the most Irish of U.S. presidents. Certainly, President Kennedy was the first um, Catholic Irish American to get elected, and there were many um, Protestant Irish Americans before that uh, who who were elected. Um, indeed, I guess you'd have to say Clinton had a Bill Clinton had a background that was um, of uh, Ulster Scots background. So there's um, a great opportunity for him to reach out to both communities in Northern Ireland, to all of Ireland, and um, to just demonstrate his great affection and love for Ireland mm. which is, is is genuine and real Absolutely well look on that positive note uh, we live with the hope that that does happen and that you will join us when it does happen to tell us uh, all about the history of our, our two great nations again but for now we'll have to leave it there that's Ted Smith who's President of the Advisory Board of Cluxman Ireland House NYU and he's also the Chair of the Clinton Institute for American Studies at UCD Ted thanks for joining us today Thanks, Mandy. It was a pleasure. This is News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Up next, tax expert Marion Ryan gives us some nifty tips on taxes that you could and should be claiming back in 2023. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, with Blue Monday just around the corner and the ongoing wait for the first payday following Christmas, it can be very easy to become despondent. But fear not, as my next guest joins me now to discuss the simple ways that you could pocket an extra few euros that you didn't even realise you were entitled to by claiming back your taxes. Marion Ryan, Business Development Director with Taxback, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Hopefully I take away some of the blues for people. Please, God, we need all the help we can get. So, um, Marion, just kick us off by telling us uh, what are the the kinds of tax back that people are entitled to that they may not realise? And what are the, some of the most common deductions that people just forget to claim? Yeah, I suppose firstly, maybe, Mandy, we might touch on, you mentioned there are people eagerly waiting their, their pay packets for the year. You're going to see immediately in your first pay packet this year, you should hopefully see a little bit more money coming into everyone's pay packet this year because with the budget, they introduced increases in the tax credits for people. So your personal tax credit and your PAYE tax credit, people's eyes are probably glazing over there now. They've both been increased up slightly there. And also they increased the tax bans. So now you can earn up to 40,000 euros before you have to pay the, the higher rate of tax. And what that means for, for all of us there, I suppose, the, the average worker there is anyone that's kind of earning the average salary, so earning over 40,000 euros in the year there, you're probably going to see an overall increase in your pay of about 500 euros in your take-home pay in the year. So that's a little bit of a, a bonus for people there. But you did mention, Mandy, that there's tax release and tax credits that people can get back. Now, I'm probably always talking about this, but it's really, really underutilized. It's simple things like your medical expenses. So your doctor's visits, your prescription fees, if you've non-routine dental work done, like if you've wisdom tooth removal, root canals, crowns and stuff like that, all of them, you can get 20% of the value of that back as a tax refund. So that's money into your account that you can get back. And at the moment there in January of 2023, which means you can claim everything back for last year. But not only that, you can go back four years. So you can go back as far as 2019. So all of the different tax credits, all of the different expenses that I talk about, everything can go back four years there. So that'll build up a really nice refund for people that'll go into their accounts, hopefully by the end of the month there for them. Mm. Another one that I think is really going to be really valuable to people is the rent tax credit was reintroduced. I know people probably heard about it in the budget, but they mightn't have realised that that was reintroduced for the year of 2022. So it's retrospective and that's unusual in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Most of the budget announcements, well, nearly all of them are always announced that they'll come into play in January. Mm. Um, but with that, with the rent tax credit, they announced it to come into play for 2022. So the only way that you can get the value of that is filing for your tax refund and getting it back. And it's a nice one. It's 500 euros per person. So if you're, if you're a single person, that's 500 euros yourself. If you're a married person and you're jointly assessed, that's a thousand euros that you can claim back as a couple. And they've tweaked it a little mm. bit compared to what it was before. Before it was quite strange. It was only for your principal primary residence. So if you were a homeowner and you were paying rent for your children in college there, there was nothing you could get back for that. Whereas now, if you're a homeowner, so you're paying a mortgage on your home there, but you have a child in college in in DCU and you have to pay rent for them there, you can claim the tax relief, the tax credit. Yeah. And what about students themselves who might be working? Like, is there anything for them to avail of in the rental space in terms of claiming stuff back? 
Yeah, well, if you're a student and you're working, you probably you might be paying the cost of your rent yourself, so you can claim the, the rent tax credit for yourself there. And I suppose as well, a lot of students will be working maybe like in the, the service industry. Mm. So you might be working the weekends, you might be working in the bar, or you might be working in a shop. There's a thing called flat rate expenses and there's over 180 different occupations that are covered by it. And the flat rate expense, it's kind of commonly known as your uniform allowance. And it's a really nice one because it's based solely on your occupation. So you don't need to send in any receipts for uniforms you don't need to send anything in once you say that you're working in one of those 180 occupations you can get the flat rate expense so say i mentioned retail staff that's 121 euros per year mm. they're entitled to there it's nurses it's doctors it's teachers i could probably go on for the next 15 minutes about it but it's worth reviewing and, and taking it into account certainly is even journalists i think have a flat rate expense yeah. that they can claim uh, marion where could somebody find that list um that you're talking about there yeah, so that's actually a downloadable. You can either download a PDF from the, the revenue website itself or they have a CSV file there on it. And it literally it can, it categorizes it all for you there. So if you're working in the hotel industry, it goes through the different, the, the chef, the the bar staff, the, the right. head waiter right. and, and stuff like that. So you can download it. If you're doing something like an application with ourselves on taxback.com, we just ask the simple question, what's your occupation? And we'll go then and we'll make sure the right one's aligned for you. Okay. So it, it, it's really straightforward. Now, working from home is um, that's something that all of us are doing a lot more than we ever thought yeah. we'd be doing. It's a bit of low hanging fruit when it comes to um, claiming tax. Like what do people need to do in order to avail of a tax refund that they might be able to get for working from home? Yeah. So the main thing you need to do is just gather up again your receipts for last year for it. Well, for, for the last couple of years in relation to there. So you do need because it's a percentage of your expense. So you can claim back, you can claim 30 percent of your heating, your electricity and your broadband costs as an expense in relation to it. So easy enough to get your receipts there for the, the statements for the heating, electricity and the broadband where it's going to be a little bit of a, a job for people. I suppose if you're like myself, I'm living in the country so mm. my heating is home home heating oil there so I do need to get onto them and get a statement in relation to it. But it's really valuable. It used to be quite a small tax relief people would get for it. It might be about 75 euros before but because the, I suppose the increase in the cost of living at the moment, those bills are going up and also the revenue have increased it up to 30%. That can be claimed from 10% before. So it's going to be a value of about 250, maybe 300 euros for people. And if you couple that with the rent, we're getting up near near 1,000 euros really quickly. Yeah, these are all starting to add up. And as you say, 30% yeah. of a, a vastly increased bill is is quite a large amount of, of money for a lot of people. So it shouldn't be discounted. I tested um, Marion five people who I knew were fairly savvy um, about this before I came on air. And three of them were aware, didn't really know if they'd kind of be able to go through the trouble of gathering everything everything together to do it. But it just shows you the, the level of um, unawareness, I suppose, that, that's yeah. out there about simple things like this. If you're just tuning in today, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnst- Johnston, and I'm chatting to tax expert Marion Ryan about how you might beat the tax man in 2023. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. We're also open on Twitter at StockNT. Marion, I just want to talk to you about the the principle of this because we alluded to this a, f- a few moments ago that every year for people this this comes around um, and, and there's a lot of people who are just fearful of the tax man or yeah. apathetic about it. But do you think there's a, a notion out there with people who are employed in particular that, look, my employer is just looking after all this for me? 
Absolutely. You've actually mentioned the top three reasons that people don't claim for a refund with it. It's the first kind of conversations we have with people. The first, and it's still ingrained in us, is the fear. Mm. There's the fear of the taxman, the fear of doing something wrong and getting an underpayment there back. And we all suppose hear of someone down the road that applied for a refund and they got a bill. And what we find is we have a lot of people that will come to us in taxback.com saying that, gosh, I'm after getting this bill from, from the revenue. And when we look at it, it's been they've made a simple mistake when they're doing their tax return they forgot to tick a box or something like that generally and the second one you mentioned there is people can my employer looks after it like in fairness to employers 99.99% of the times they do they do your taxes right they apply your tax credit certificate but what they don't know is they don't know your personal circumstances to claim these additional tax credits and expenses there for you so that's where the refunds come in it's claiming for your medical expenses the flat rate expenses i mentioned there and then there's other ones there that are really valuable like there's things like the home care is tax credit and who that's for is that's for families, say, there's one spouse is working, one spouse is at home looking after the, the, the young children there. That's 1,700 euros for 2022 that you can claim back there. That's a really how, nice... How, sorry, how much did you say? 1,700 euros. Wow. Yeah, and that's really good. And even if the spouse that's at home, say they're working part-time, they can earn up to 9,000 euros in the year and you're still qualified to claim that there. There's a dependent relative tax credit. That's in relation to, so maybe your mum or dad are living next door to you, they're dependent on you, you're looking after them there. That's 250 euros a year. So there's all these little kind of niche Mm. (laughs) things there that I suppose the problem is if you don't know about it, you can't select it and you, you can't claim it back there. So that's why we would have a questionnaire now. It's a simple enough one there. And it's not me being nosy, wanting to know everyone's business there. But we ask things like, are you married? Are you single? What's your occupation? Do you mm. have children? Like that. It's all a little building block to, to build it up there. Like the revenue like has confirmed that there's 300 million euros that was left unclaimed for 2021 of tax refunds mm. for people. That's for one year alone. It's, that's a lot of money. So look, Marion, you've told us a lot about it and what is possible um, in terms of claiming tax back. Now, can you talk to us about how you go about it? You're sitting at home now and there's a couple there. Both of them are working. They've got two or three children. Their lives are very busy. What is the first step that they should take in sort of reevaluating and doing their own personal audit on their tax? Gather up your receipts (laughs) and and, and get yourself into the mindset of it. So every time you go to the doctor, get the receipt. If it's the case, put it into a drawer. We all have our the, everything stored up in the cloud. Now snap a picture of it, put it up into the cloud and leave it in the cloud until to next January there. The same with the, the pharmacy. Every time you're going collecting prescription fee for yourself or the kids, get the, get the receipt, the blue slip there, or even just get them to give you an annual statement. And the same there. File everything in there so you have everything and but, send it all into us. But just say, Marion, you haven't done that, right? That's about forward. Mm. And for next year, maybe you get a box and you just put all your, your, your bills for medical expenses and all that good stuff into your box. But just say you're trying to look at this for last year and say, like, I don't mm. know, even know where to start. You go and you look at your bills for your house, for your medical expenses and you gather them all together, what does somebody do with them then? Well, of course, me being a taxback.com, I'd be advising you to come to us. But but you, you can, there is, you can come onto the revenue website yourself and, and file your tax return with them there. If you do have the fear, I suppose the beauty of getting someone like ourselves to look into it for you is that we are that step away from the tax office. So we can have a look at it for you and see what it is. And we'll know what you're entitled to. with a quick conversation with you there and we'll be able to deduce what tax release we can claim for you there and file the return on your behalf and then I suppose I always say to people anytime there's a major life event there's usually something tax related 
Mm. And it's usually going to trigger a refund. So if you got married in, in the last four years, we would all suggest to be jointly assessed. There's never a negative to it there. It means you can share everything over and back. But like that, you'd be able then to maybe claim the home care as tax credit if it's the case that unfortunately a marriage breaks down. So if it's the case you get separated or divorced in a year, it's not a great year personally, I suppose, for people there. But it is good year in relation to your taxes. There's going to be quite a good refund for both spouses that year there. Or if it's a case that maybe you're, you're a single parent. There's a really valuable tax credit there called the Single Parent Child Carers Credit, and that's €1,650 Euros per year. Mm. And in addition to that, you get an increased band by €4,000, so it's an actual value to yourself of about €2,000 a year there. So again, it's just, it's, it's what the problem is for people is to, to know what you're entitled to. But I would always think anytime there's a life yeah, changing event, a major life event, think tax. That's a really good benchmark like the the, the change circumstances and um, mm-hmm. just one final question on this in terms of tax release pension contributions that's always a big one that people ask about can you just talk us through what's available there? Absolutely so if your pension is done through work if it's managed through payroll and you it's coming out of your wages every month you need not worry one little bit about it it's all done and dusted and sorted there because your pension contributions will be taken from your salary before you start paying tax on it so you're getting the tax relief at source, source there and you're getting the full benefit mm-hmm. when it comes to if you are making private pension contributions so say you come to the end of the year and you have a little bit of savings you're like right I'm going to put that to my pension so you contact your pension provider and you pay a lump sum in with that you're entitled to claim the tax back on that. You're still allowed to get it at your marginal rate, but you're not getting it at source. So you need to include that on your tax refund application as well. So when you're filing your tax return, send in the statement as well in relation to that there and you can get quite a good tax relief on it there. So if you're a 40% taxpayer and you contribute, say, €10,000 additional into your pension of the year, you could be getting €4,000 of that back mm. and on your taxes there. So it, that's the way to think about it. If, my, if it's all done through work, it's you're fine. fine. If I'm doing it myself, I need to claim it back. Finally, just Marion, and very, very briefly, because we've run out of time, the deadline that people have to put their claim in. The beauty of it with PAY applications like ourselves is that there's a four year window. So four years after the tax year is open, you can go and you file a assume. tax return. Yeah, but we would always say do it as soon as possible. The 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 laws can change, they can change, stuff like that. So my, my windows might close on, on people there, but we would always say as soon as possible. It's not like self-assessed. You don't have a, a deadline like it's 31st of October there. Claim it back as soon as you can. Well, Marion, an unlikely positive discussion about taxation that I hope people will find informative and a bit of good news on the wages front, hopefully on the way. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Marion Ryan, Business Development Director with Taxback.com. Marion, thanks once again for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. This is News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. And after the break, I'll be talking to Jeff Mache of the Financial Times about the murky world of the grey looks economy. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now take a listen to this. That was, of course, Jessie J with price tag because when it comes to luxury goods, it's not just about the price tag anymore. It's also about availability. A well-meaning expedition to buy his wife a watch led Jeff Mache of the Financial Times down a rabbit hole economy, which is called the grey lux economy. But how is that affecting our consumer choices? We're joined now by Jeff uh, from Southern California. Jeff, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on Taking Stock today. Hello. Now, Jeff, start us off. Like, what is the looks great economy and how did you stumble upon it? 
Well, I stumbled upon it quite innocently while trying to buy my wife a birthday present. I thought I'd buy her a Rolex and I couldn't find any. So next thing you know, I'm, uh, I've fallen down this rabbit hole and I'm dealing with these grey market dealers trying to sell me uh, a secondhand or used Rolex. Well, firstly, lucky wife that you're out shopping for a Rolex for her Christmas present or whatever it was. But um, talk to us about what actually you encountered then when you went down this journey of trying to find a Rolex, which which you would think like if you're going to pay that money for something like a Rolex, there's going to be plenty of them out there. Well, I was surprised because we'd been hit by adverts for this watch on uh, on Instagram and on billboards and on television. So I thought I'd just pop down to my local Rolex retailer and just pick one up. Uh, how silly I was, because when I got down there, uh, the shelves were completely empty. Uh, it, looked like a, it looked like a bunch of Ram Raiders had just been in there and, and stolen everything. Yeah, like you wrote this article in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago. It was fascinating. Some of the numbers in it are literally mind boggling. So Rolex, um, 8.6 billion per annum and making 1 million watches. Where are they all going? Well, that's what I wanted to know because I needed to buy one. Um, so it led me down this into an investigation. Of course, everything becomes a story when you're a journalist. So I started looking for where these watches could possibly have gone. And I found out that there was this strange case going on in Chicago where uh, staff at a, a Rolex dealer had blown the whistle on what they said was this racketeering uh, situation where watches were flying out of the back door of this store uh, and into the hands of these grey market dealers who were selling them for vastly inflated prices. Um, so normally I, I investigate uh, kind of large criminal enterprises and, and things like that. So it, this this piqued my interest. I wanted to know what was going on. Um, and what I found out was that you can't now just walk into a shop and buy a Rolex anymore. It's just, it's impossible. Yeah, and it was kind of all happening in plain sight. Uh, the investigation showed that it, this was happening first of all at a retail space uh, for Rolex um, just talk to us about the what was involved in taking it from that shop floor into the web and onto the consumers who were very often paying 10 times the retail value on the second hand market well, it all starts really with this um, wild economy that we're in. When everyone's got so much money, the demand for Rolex watches went up. So uh, say, for example, a, a Rolex Submariner has a, a retail price of, let's say, $6,000. Um, the people in the store uh, selling those watches know that they could get $16,000 uh, on the grey market instead of selling them directly to customers, it's alleged that they were kind of slipping them out the back door to friends and colleagues who would then sell them uh, on this grey market for, uh, you know, make profit. And Jeff, what's the difference between the looks grey economy and how does that differ with the, the traditional black market as we would know it? When you think of the black market, you think of stolen goods, right? Uh, things that have fallen off the back of a lorry. Um, the grey market, this is real stuff, real, genuine, authentic uh, Rolex uh, and other luxury goods, but they're just not sold directly from Rolex. They've come via some slightly shady 
uh, kind of middleman. Mm-hmm. And what about a company like Rolex? Are they are they actually trying to, you know, make their supply more, what is it, lucrative for themselves? Are they producing as much as they always have or is that reduced? Is that driving some of this? They're producing as much as they always have. A little dip due to COVID, but not not much. They haven't taken much of a hit, but it's just the demand has gone up. And that has pushed the price of their product up, which is basic economics. It's good for them. Um, they have just... Uh, in the months when I was reporting this article, they have just got into this second-hand market. So now Rolex, instead of uh, driving customers into the hands of these uh, grey market dealers, you can now buy an authentic second-hand Rolex directly from a Rolex dealer. So they are working to to try and stop what's going on. They're, they're, they're doing their due diligence. Are there cultural and generational differences here with some something like a Rolex uh, watch? You know, uh, is Gen Z, for example, uh, as likely to go for these sort of high status glam labels with their sustainability hat on? Is that something to do with why Rolex might be changing their approach to, say, the second hand market? It's a really interesting point. I, I spoke to an expert um, who told me that Gen Z won't have any time for Rolex as a luxury brand. It doesn't translate. You can't pass down, uh, you know, a reputation. Um, and they certainly wouldn't want to get involved in this grey market stuff. They'd much rather buy a fake. Mm. Um, wow. I think Rolex Rolex has got to um, pay attention to this stuff because, um, you know, the next generation are not going to inherit this notion that you need to have a Rolex to be successful. Um, you know, they they would much rather buy a G-Shock and spend mm. their money on experiences and things like that. And I, I identify with that even as even as a millennial. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Jeff Mayish uh, from the Financial Times. He's based in Southern California and we're talking about the Lux Grey economy. Um, I know this is a very difficult question and very hard to quantify, but how does an econ- a Lux Grey economy impact on, you know, the wider economy in a country or what could this undermine in terms of sales and taxation? It's, it's really hard to tell. Um, if you go to New York where you can find grey market dealers for Rolexes and you buy a Rolex Submariner for $15,000 in cash, is there taxation? Mm. Um, one of the one of the number one things that I found while investigating this was a lot of dealers here in the States, if they sell you a Rolex, they will ship the box, an empty box, to an address in another state where they don't have uh, such high taxes uh, in a in a bid to avoid um, sales taxes. There's a lot of corruption here, um, and I think overall it it is going to have a huge um, you know economic impact, uh, as you know, particularly if people aren't paying the correct uh, sales taxes. And what about you know? social media and the online platform does that provide a sort of a, a very safe space for people who are trying to conduct their affairs because I albeit on a much smaller scale tried to acquire a watch uh, just before Christmas I had my poor niece running all over London to try and find one of these Swatch Moon watches and 
um, after looking it up online a couple of times, I suddenly got swamped with um, offers to buy them uh, on, on either the counterfeit market. So, you know, in your view, could this type of activity um, work without social media or without the online platforms or is it more hand to hand? Social media is driving the grey market. If you need a, a Rolex Oyster Perpetual, um, you can find one on on Instagram or TikTok or even eBay. I think the danger is that um, there's a risk that you might buy either a lemon, one that's broken or, or is, has a time bomb uh, inside that's going to break in a year. Or you could even buy a, a counterfeit unknowingly. The counterfeit Rolexes are so good, you would need a jeweler's eye to know that you'd been ripped off. Mm. And interesting what you said earlier about Gen Z's maybe being more comfortable with the counterfeit brand than the real thing. I, I heard that Gen Z are, are, are very okay with buying uh, replica fashion and replica luxe brands. They're, they're completely cool with it. Mm. One of the other interesting things in the article and related to the investigation that you were talking about was this grooming of salespeople. Um, they have to be quite audacious, though, don't they, if they get to the point where they're on the floor of Rolex um, to actually carry out this. This It's not really a scam because they're legitimately buying these Rolex watches. I mean, it's it must be very tempting if you work uh, in a in a jewelry store in Chicago and you're earning twenty dollars an hour. If someone comes in and says, "Sell me this Rolex," uh, you know, and don't sell it to anyone else, so I'll give you a kickback of fifteen hundred dollars. You know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be very appealing. Um, even more so, could you secretly buy that watch with your own? credit card and sell it for a profit. Mm. Yeah, that's very tempting too. And that's one of the things with these high lux items now that you're seeing more and more that personal ID and details have to be forthcoming before they hand them over. Is that one way that the brands, the big brands are trying to counteract this? Yeah, I mean, when you buy a Rolex, you, you want to buy papers uh, and it comes with a little warranty ID card. Um, which again can also be faked. Uh, they can make anything in China, um, but authenticity is is key when you're buying something uh, of such high value that that can be counterfeited so easily. Mm. I'm not sure, Jeff. Even if I was lucky enough to get a Rolex, if I'd feel safe wearing one. But tell us, did you find one for your wife in the end? Was she happy with her present? I did. I did find one. It wasn't the one that she originally wanted, but she was very happy. But you mentioned how dangerous it is now. We we had, while I was trying to buy this watch, we had a number of high profile snatch and grab incidences in Los Angeles where people were being held up for their, for their Rolex in the street, you know, at gunpoint, um, which made me kind of double think, you know, should we even be uh, wearing these things? You know, is it going to put us at risk? Uh, maybe uh, maybe next year we should consider getting a Casio instead. Maybe. Uh, Jeff, just finally, where do you see this going? I think as the economy slides into a recession, I think the demand for high-value goods like Rolexes and other luxury things will diminish. And I think the grey market will will disappear on its own and people will prefer those who can afford to buy luxury goods will will go straight to Rolex to buy them. Jeff, that was a fascinating story and thanks for taking the time to share that with us today. That's Jeff Mate of the Financial Times. Thank you.
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. You can email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with all of your Sunday newspapers. And that's on On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening today and enjoy the rest of your day.